All right, so uh, we, we are, we're going to talk about Exodus tonight, uh, mostly Exodus, but really the story of the Exodus, uh, which I say um, runs from the book of Exodus, really through the end of Deuteronomy. That's kind of where the story ends up. Joshua really begins a new kind of story. Moses is uh, passing away, and the torch is being uh, given to Joshua. So this is kind of the second big chapter in our review. And uh, just to recap last week, we talked about Genesis, but so much is covered in Genesis. In fact, the first three chapters of Genesis really uh, contain, I would say, in, in embryonic form, the, all the big themes of the story. Um, and every part of the story, you can look back to Genesis 1, 2, or 3 and find what's being replayed and re, uh, reworked. So just to recap, so Genesis 1 through 3 really are the foundation for everything. It, the, God created heavens and the earth. God created a place. He, he, he planted a garden. He put man in the garden to work it and to keep it. He gave instructions. He would himself converse with mankind in the garden God creates a good place to share with his children, you could say. And uh, they are his image. They are to reproduce who he is in the earth. And that is to fill the earth with blessing, good things. And God said, this is very good after he created man. Everything that he created was good and mankind was very good. So they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply. That was the, the mandate that was given to them as they cultivated the garden in conjunction with God, he would come down, he would walk with them. And one of the first and only glimpses of this in action that we have are Adam and God discussing what to name the animals. What an awesome, uh, what an awesome picture. All right, Adam, what do you want to call this? Father, son, in the shop, discussing the naming of things. Um, Where are we going to put this? What are we going to call this? How are we going to set this place up? And they're doing it together, right? And the father's giving the son say in the matter, right? Whatever the man would call the things, that's what it would be called. God says, all right, good. So it's a beautiful picture, but it's very short-lived. So, but, but he would come down, he would walk with them. And in doing so, the glory of God would multiply. That was, that was supposed to happen. It was going to, supposed to start there, right? And it was supposed to grow and grow and grow and grow. Um, however, man and woman uh, chose independence and disobedience under the false pretense that independence and disobedience would make them like God. And there's just deep irony all through that. Satan twists God's words. He says that they are um, going to really keep, uh, keep mankind in their place. That was not God's heart at all. Right? God's heart was to give the earth over to mankind, to, to teach him how to do it, and to, to watch him work, and to work with him. And Satan says, you know what? God doesn't want you to eat of this tree because he wants it for himself. He wants to remain different, and he wants you to be man and him to be God and to keep it separate. So they find themselves cast out of the place that God had created for them to live and dwell with them in. 
and not only cast out, but the doors locked behind them, and there are angelic flaming sword sentries posted so they can't get back in. They are not allowed back into the place that God created uh, for them. And there's this, I didn't read this last week, but it's, it's highly important uh, in Genesis 3. This is in the curse to the serpent. This is the Lord God said to the servant, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's a cryptic saying. But as time goes on, what that means starts to crystallize. And it means that there is going to be someone of the offspring of Eve, a man, who eventually triumphs over the serpent and the deception that, that uh, they listened to and that got them off of their God-given uh, course. So outside the garden, we saw last week, outside the garden, life is terrible. It gets to the place where Corruption, uh, decay, you know, if you're in physics, the law of entropy, everything is decaying. That's because of the fall, right? Unless there's an intervention, everything moves to a state of less order, away from order toward chaos. And that's was set in motion by uh, man's disobedience. Decay, violence, death, and corruption. Right, so, so rather than the glory of God proliferating in the earth, corruption and decay and death and violence start to proliferate in the earth. And God says, the earth would be better off without man here. <laughs> you know, we created this for him. We gave him a job to do. Well, he's done the exact opposite of what he was supposed to do. And now the earth itself is groaning under the weight of this corruption. We need to cleanse it. And get rid of this and, and, and renew it so that he sends the flood, but he, he picks a man and this Adam or, or Noah becomes sort of a new Adam. He tells, Adam, he tells Noah, be fruitful, multiply. I'm starting with you. You're righteous. You're listening to me. You're somewhat doing it the way that I say. Although, as we see, after the flood, Noah himself goes astray. He, he, he does something that's unrighteous. Uh, but... He tells them to be fruitful and multiply, and so the sons of Noah begin to fill the earth, and the, the earth becomes full of, of people once again. But, just like it happened before the flood, the ambitions of mankind um, are not to glorify God. They're not to walk with him and, and, and cultivate the earth and bring forth life and teeming fruitfulness. It's, their ambitions are different. Their ambitions are to build a city and a tower that reaches the heavens to make a name for ourselves. We want our name. We want to leave a legacy for us. We don't want to create a legacy for God. We want to create a legacy for us. And so God again says, this is not what the earth was created for. You're going to destroy it um, unless I intervene. And so it's really both the flood and the confusion at Babel are really acts of God's mercy on the earth. <laughs> Right? It, would, it, would, it, would, it would become destroyed if God didn't step in and, and right the ship. So that leads us up to Abraham. 
Uh, but to this, to this point, we constantly see God intervening on man's behalf and desiring, you know, he never stopped wanting to walk with man and, and to do what he created man to do. Um, but the other thing that we see is what, is what God tells Cain. He says in uh, chapter 4, he says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Satan's right there around the corner. It's close by. Its desire is for you. And man, do we see that played out all through the beginning of Genesis. That sin wants to... to to get its way into the earth. Satan wants to corrupt what God created for good. And so God called, the the rest of Genesis is about God's walk with Abraham. He says, he doesn't say be fruitful and multiply. What's he say? He says, I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you. Okay, so God starts sort of a new thing where he says, all right, you stick with me. And though it's impossible for you, if you're with me, I'm going to make it happen. As long as you're walking with me, as long as you're trusting me. And that was the big thing that Abraham learned. That is, as long as he trusted God, God was, going, God was able to make him the kind of man that every man was created to be. One who trusts God, one who obeys God, and one, who, uh, one through whose life, Blessing comes into the earth. Not corruption, not decay, not murder, not violence, but blessing, which is what God had filled the earth with in the garden. So God calls Abraham to walk with him. And all the way back in chapter 15, Genesis 15, we have really the preface to the chapter of the story tonight. Chapter 15 says this, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here, right? Uh, God had promised Abram the land of, of Canaan. He said, they will come back into the land in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, that's a really loaded sentence there. Um, and there's a lot we could say about that. But the Amorites, you could lump them under just general mankind, right? The kind of mankind that's corrupting the earth. He says, I'm working with them. I see what they're doing. They're polluting this land. My ultimate goal is to replace them in this part of the land, to replace them with you. So that rather than the iniquity that they're bringing into the earth in this portion of land, you are going to come and walk with me, and your people are going to do things the way that I command them, and we're going to have a piece of land here where... The people who walk with me live, and in that piece of land, there's going to be blessing. There's going to be my presence, okay? And this was the goal. This was God, what God wanted to do. But he also was waiting until the time that the, the iniquity of the Amorites was complete. So, 
He says, to your offspring I give this land, but you're going to go out and, and be enslaved in a foreign territory, foreign country, but then I'm going to come and bring you back here. All right, so we end the book of Genesis, and they're in Egypt. They go down to Egypt, but they're not enslaved. In fact, Joseph is he's a head, head honcho in Egypt, right? And he's actually been part of the relief effort for this famine that he uh, interpreted in Pharaoh's dream that, that seven years of famine was coming, a severe famine. So in the seven years leading up to that, he prepared, he stockpiled, and he is now... Uh, the guy that people come to for relief. And so his family ends up coming down for food during this famine. And they have this great reunion um, there in Egypt. Eventually he convinces them to, to move and relocate their whole family, which is 70 strong at this point, down into Egypt. And he gives them a great place in Goshen. And that's where the, the story picks up in uh, Exodus 1. So uh, before we dig into this story, let me just say that Exodus, the, the Exodus in particular, is really the first big uh, mountain peak of the story. It's kind of literally a mountain peak, Mount Sinai. Um, the story, right, mankind starts off and they go down and God begins a redemption plan. And as they are brought back out of slavery and back into the land, that's really the first big climax in the story. Now, there's another climax later on, and that's really the, the kingdom of David, when David ascends to the throne. Those are the two big high points, right? This, this time of the exodus, of the deliverance from Egypt, and the time of the, the establishment of the glorious kingdom, the throne of David. Those are, those are the two high points of the big story, okay? So tonight, we're really going to uh, zoom in on this first big climax. And it was, I mean, they set up a, I mentioned Passover. They set up a feast remembering this night. This was an identity-forming event in the life of God's people. We are the people that God brought out of Egypt. God is the God who brought us out of Egypt. I mean, it defined who they were, and it defined God for them. All right, so this is a, this is a big chapter in the story. All right, so in, in uh, chapter one, it opens up like this. These are the names. Uh, I want to read all the names. It says, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. <laughs> Because they're God's people. Because that's his plan. They're not in the land, but they're still God's people. And they are blessed. And there's this great, um, there's this great details about how uh, Pharaoh even tries to, to suppress their fruitfulness and, and kill their babies. And the, the, the midwives are saying, hey, you've you never seen mothers give birth like these Hebrew women, <laughs> let me tell you. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Well, that's, that's straight out. I mean, that's God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Um, however, there, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. 
Now, the serpent was the most shrewd of all the creatures in the garden, right? Hey, God's got a people. There's a good thing going on. There's an enemy of that, right? This is the same story being told over and over. Let's deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. We need to keep them in bondage. As long as they're here, they're under our thumb. So they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. They're building, they're cultivating, but not God's land. They're cultivating cities named after pagan kings. They're being forced to build, to to use their God-given productivity in the service of ungodly kings who are the enemies of God. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The end of chapter 2 says this, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So God chooses Moses. The life of Moses is a great uh, story in itself, the way he was born, the way he ended up in Pharaoh's courts. Um, the way he grew up, and then ultimately the way he tried to deliver his people, but it was after the flesh, and he goes out to the wilderness, and he meets God, and God sends him back to be his agent of deliverance, of salvation for the people. It's where he reveals his name, Yahweh, I am who I am. He reveals the name that I am the God. I I will show myself powerful over everyone that's named as a God in the land of Egypt. So he sends Moses and he says, um, chapter 4, verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. That's pretty amazing scripture. These people, these are my sons. Think about it. I have a plan for them. I have a place for them. I have a way of life to train them up in. And right now, They're being trained, not trained, they're being forced, subjected to use their skills and their talents for something that I didn't create it for. They were created to to be fruitful and multiply, which is what they're doing. They were also created to take dominion and to cultivate the earth and to build, to, to construct life in a way that reflects God. They are being forced to construct things in a way that reflects 
earthly kings who hate God. He says, I'm coming to take my son back so that he can do the work. So that it says, so that he may serve me. So that he may serve me. And all through this section, he says, let my people go. Moses says it to Pharaoh, let my people go. That we may worship God. And it wasn't so that we may go sing songs to God. It was so that we may go live life in the way that serves God. Right? And this would fulfill the original calling that Adam had. That was worship. Right? Worship involves work. Worship involves stewardship. So God sends plagues on Egypt. Pharaoh does not want to let them go. There's a great struggle. But God systematically dismantles every claim to power that Egypt had. He goes on down through the line. And that's really what the ten plagues are a demonstration of. God's complete and total triumph over every supposed god of Egypt. The second to last plague is darkness. Right? The great sun god. I, I even control... I'm even more powerful than the sun. The sun is subject to me. I made it. (laughs) I put it there. But then he says, and Pharaoh himself, right? You've probably heard what the pyramids represent. The pyramids represent, you know, Pharaoh is at the top and and there's an invisible pyramid coming from the heavens down. and, And Pharaoh is where the heavens and the earth meet, is where the divine and the human meet, right? That's why... That's why Pharaoh was seen as a god. And God triumphs over everything. The sun god, and you know what? The god man himself. I have power over him. I can bring him to his knees. Watch me do it. So God triumphs over the power, the powers of the enslaving nation. And he brings his people out. He says that we're going back to the land that I gave you. And there's this wonderful uh, unity to the story because they're going up in chapter 13. It says, uh, verse 18, God led the people round by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with them. It ties it back to that 400 years before. These people were there, but this was not their home. He took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Which, by the way, Hebrews mentions that about Joseph as his claim to faith. By faith, Joseph said, guys, take my bones with you when you go. He was so sure that God was going to fulfill his promise that they carried as a family. He's going to come, like he told Abraham, he's going to come and take us up out of this land and bring us back into the land that he promised us. So they get to the Red Sea, and this is really, really cool. Verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Well, that's what God did when he created the earth. 
The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters and He divided the waters and He made dry land and water. What's happening here? A new creation. We're coming out of the... Of, of, we're going back into the land. And my first order of business is to, is, is to recreate everything. And so as the people of Israel cross the Red Sea, they're entering into a new creation. This is why baptism corresponds to this. Every time there's a burial in the water and raising back up and the Spirit's there, right? This is a new creation, a, a resurrection that's happening. And then the water covers over the Egyptians and all the filth and the corrupting influence that they represented. Right? This is like the waters of the flood. So he creates, brings his people through, and then covers over Egypt with the waters. It says, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They come through. Chapter 19 is a, is a really significant chapter. And God says this. Um, the Lord, Moses goes up to the mountain, Mount Sinai. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, now, we're here, Adam, Eve, in the garden. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You will be the crown jewel of creation, like Adam and Eve were. You will be my people who know me and who know how to run things on the earth, <laughs> who know how to cultivate it, steward it. You'll be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. I created this thing. I haven't given up on it. I am waiting for people, I'm waiting for a people to come and do what I told Adam to do. Do what I told Moses to do. And now do, because I have committed myself to your family, the family of Abraham, you do what I have told you. Keep my covenant, and I will make you a blessing. I will turn around. I will reverse the curse that Adam brought into the world, and I'll do it through you and your offspring. All the earth is mine. God so loved the world. God is interested in the earth. After he flooded the whole earth, he says, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to work in such a way that I can redeem, we can get back to that, we can renew creation. Right? And this is, we, you know, we live in this promise now, that God has renewed. We read it on Thursday night. Behold, I am making all things new. As the new Jerusalem comes down, I am making all things new. God is renewing the earth. All the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now we have to connect that to you will be to me, you will be a son to me. 
We have to connect it to walk before me and be blameless. And command your children after you. And through you, all the earth will be blessed. Right? The priesthood is just another step in that project that God is wanting to find someone with whom he can work in the way that he created Adam to, to walk with him. Does that make sense? And to steward the earth. You'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You'll be the, you'll be the portion of humanity that's not bringing corruption into the earth. You'll be the portion of humanity that is blessed and through whom blessing is going and, and, and redeeming the effects of the curse. And you will be the, the people through whom the earth is renewed. And all peoples will come and be renewed uh, through what I'm doing in this nation. So that's what he says. This is my vision for you. This is why I brought you out of Egypt. So you can be my people. We have a job to do. You're my son. You were serving somebody else. Now you've come to serve me. All right. And so in the book of Exodus, God gives them two amazing. I've heard it. I've heard them compared to. In the new creation, in this new kind of creation, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. It's the tabernacle and, and the law, the Torah. Right there they are. They're back in the place. And God's, God has given them two great um, symbols to remind them of who they are. And so we see the law is given at this point. I am the Lord your God. You shall uh, have no other God before me. Well, he begins the Ten Commandments by saying this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Right? And that's how he was to be known. The God who brought you out of Egypt. That's how he prefaced the law. All right? And that, cha- that really changes the law. That changes how we view the law. It's not just a moral code that dropped out of heaven. It's the way that the one who delivered us from bondage says is the best way to live. It's different, isn't it? When you see where the law comes in the story... It makes it totally different. He has, they were slaves. They were helpless. He brought them out. And now he gives them, here's how you actually fill the earth and subdue it and take dominion. This is how you do it. First of all, we're going to say, there's no other gods, all right? Just get that out of the way. Remember the Sabbath? There should be a day, this is the seventh day of creation, there should be a day where we're just together. And we're ceasing from work, the work's great, but you were created to, to dwell with me. You were created in my image. And we need a day where we just are together and we are restored and recreated. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. These are all things that bring corruption into the earth. These are all the reasons why this is a terrible place now. So let's stop that. That doesn't belong in the garden, right? We're back in the garden now, okay? So he gives them the, the, the word, the law, and he gives them the tabernacle, which ends up being sort of a mini, it's a microcosm of the nation, right? And he, he selects, he establishes the priesthood as really a picture of 
what the nation of Israel should be on, the half, on, on behalf of the world. So here, here's this place, guys. And this is a perfect place. It's a holy place. And it's where I'm going to come. And because it's holy, I can come down. It's holy in the way that uh, the, the garden originally was. I can come down and I can meet with you here. I can speak with you. My presence can be in this tabernacle because it's holy. And because these priests are ensuring the holiness of this space. And so now I'm coming down and I am meeting with you in the same way that I came down in the cool of the day in the garden and walked with Adam. We're getting there, guys. Do you see how it's taking shape? Here's this little tabernacle, but it's going to start here. And you need to learn how this goes. And the tabernacle is full of garden imagery, right? There's a curtain between the whole, and the curtain is full of pomegranates and... Right? And there's also uh, imagery of cherubim right, guarding the garden. Right? There, are, there are very um, particular stipulations for entering into the tabernacle. There are angels posted at the Garden of Eden so that they can't just waltz right in with all of their corruption. Right? This was created as a holy space. So they have the law and the tabernacle and the priesthood all come into being at this point in the story. And they all point to the original intent of mankind. Right? To be God's people in God's place so that the presence of God could be amongst them. Right? Those those things just keep coming up over and over and over in the story. Back to the notes here. Unfortunately, there's also, so there's a second garden, but there's also a second fall. (laughs) And that's in chapter 32. Moses is up on the mountain receiving the pattern for the tabernacle and receiving the word on how to live, how to fill the earth, how to take dominion and steward things according to what will bring God the most glory and in line with the way that he created them. While Moses is up there, the people make gods for themselves and they worship. And Moses comes back down and he sees it all and he goes, this is what we left. (laughs) This is what we just got saved from. And Moses says, Lord, what are the Egyptians going to say? I mean, you just showed how powerful you were and how much you triumphed. And what are the nations of the earth going to say? Because we're no different. We're supposed to be this special people. We're the God. We, we have the God who brought us out of Egypt. And he says, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out? To kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants. The Lord relented from the disaster they had spoken, bringing upon his people. So, there's the the failure around the golden calf. At the very moment when God was giving Moses the plans for the tabernacle and the law that they were to live by, the people were going astray. And so there's this reminder. Yes, God is able to save. God is mighty and powerful. But the hearts of man are wicked. 
They're turned away from God. How is God going to reverse this? The very same corruption that he delivered them from is at work amongst them. They brought it with them. What's God going to do? And so this process begins of he brought them out of Egypt, but then the process begins of him bearing with them and trying to get the Egypt out of them, right? Because they bring it with them. Their hearts are hardened. And there's a whole generation then. God says, all right, I'm done. I've had it with this. You've tested me these 10 times. I'm still going into the land. I'm still going to bring you into the land. But none of this generation is going. They're all going to pass away in the wilderness. Moses himself ends up not being able to enter back into the land. Right? The, the gate is closed. The cherubim are there. And if people aren't going to do it God's way, they're not going to get in. They are not allowed. Why? Because this is a holy place. And because if they were to go in, they would die. They really would die. The holiness of God would consume them, consume their corruption. And so that's why there's so much of the fear of God that's infused into the worship around the tabernacle. It is no light thing to be in the presence of God. Now, we were created to be in the presence of God. It's the best thing in the world. But corruption cannot exist in the presence of God. Corruption cannot exist. Selfishness, independence, disobedience, rebellion can't exist. And so God keeps it out of his presence. And so this whole story is about how do we get back to the place where we just, heaven and earth are not this separated by this gulf. Heaven and earth are, are intermingled. And, and earth is a holy place where God can come and go and, and walk with man. And man doesn't have to be worried that his corruption is going to be consumed by God. But you see this happening. God gives them a pattern to worship. He gives them specific instructions. The book of Leviticus is full of, here's exactly how you maintain holiness. And none of this was the end goal. It was, hey, for now, so I can come down in this little part of the earth in all of my holiness and glory, which it was shrouded by a cloud in those days pillar of cloud by day. and a pillar. I can come down and I can talk with you if you show me that you're going to do it according to my will. If you show me that your heart is not independent, but it's, it's soft and receptive, and if you really are going to listen to me and trust me, well, then I'll come and meet with you here. And it was never supposed to only stay in the tabernacle. Right? This is, the, this is the, what the gospel really throws the cover off of all that. That it's in Jesus, but it's in the church. And in the church, it's filling the whole earth. But Leviticus is very specific. But there's this story right in the middle of Leviticus where people started being a little flippant <clears throat> with, the holy, with the holiness of God. God consumes them. Aaron's sons. He consumes them. He's reminding them that it is no light thing to corrupt what God created for good. And as long as you are doing what seems best to you, you're no better than those two that I kicked out of the garden in the first place. They thought they knew better. They thought that I was a certain way that I wasn't. <laughs> they thought that I was hindering them or keeping them or just had all these persnickety preferences that were flippant and, and uh, 
didn't really have anything behind. No, no, they were totally wrong. They were deceived. So clean and unclean, uh, holy and profane, the Lord is holy. You will be holy as the Lord God is holy. So this whole idea of holiness comes in. But what holiness is, is just God opposed to the corruption of mankind. God needs to separate the two. He says, this corruption came in. It never should have come in. We have to keep that out. Let me show you how. So then that brings us to Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, there's, it's really a group of three sermons, three long sermons. And, and Moses recounts the journey up to this point. Then he clarifies what's the heart of the law? What is the heart and why does God want us to live this way? And Deuteronomy really, uh, you could say the whole book is about getting to the heart of the law and getting the law in our hearts. That's what Deuteronomy is all about. What is God really saying about the way we should live? And how can we get that deep inside of us as we enter into the land? Because we don't, <laughs> we don't want to get kicked out again. We know what happens when we bring corruption into the, into the mix. And so how can we get the law in our hearts? And so Deuteronomy ends with this uh, renewal of the covenant as the new generation prepares to go in. And a, a crystal clear um, listing of the stipulations of the covenant. These are all the conditions. Right? And it's the last several chapters of Deuteronomy. And God says, if you do this, blessing will come. If you do this, curse will come. Ultimately, if you do this, you're going to get kicked out again. <laughs> and he, he says it in no uncertain terms. And that's important because when we get to the next several chapters, especially after the high mark of David and the, as the monarchy begins to divide and splinter and become more and more idolatrous and wicked, the prophets come in to remind people, you know what God said. And so you know what he's about to do. You're about to be taken away out of the land again. All right. Okay. So that kind of catches us up to, that really gets us through the Pentateuch, the first five books of, of Moses. And so next week we'll, we'll talk about the conquest of the land. Seems good, right? It's just kind of like when they come out of Egypt, Seems great, but then there's all these undercurrents of grumbling and complaining, of we want to go back to Egypt, of we don't really trust God's leadership. Who is this Moses guy? And that gets them, it stalls the plan. It doesn't get them cast back into Egypt, but it stalls the project. The project moves forward in the next generation, but again, uh, they run up against, in in the generations immediately after Joshua, and this is what the book of Judges is about, they run up against, uh, they're not quite getting it. They're not being the people that God desired for them to be. There are moments where a person or two really gets it and is able to bring blessing and deliverance to the people. But for the most part, it's this downward cycle. Then we get really into the, to the depths of darkness. And then we begin the story of Samuel, David, back up to that high point of the golden age of, of the monarchy. All right, so that's where we're headed. Does this make sense? Kind of the big strands that we're, that we're watching. God has a people. He wants to put them in a place so that he can be with them in his presence. Right? Really, those are the things that, 
that uh, story Bible uh, points out. Um, kind of two big thoughts that I, I hope that we take away from tonight. As we're, as we're tracking through the story, um, up to this point, I think there are three fundamental identity-shaping ways to know God in the story. The first one is that he's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the creator. That's really what Genesis is about. I created this thing. I have a vision for it, and I'm committed to it 100%. God is the maker of heaven and earth. Also included in that is that he's not subject to, like the other gods, he's not subject to created things. He stands outside of the created order. And so he's not subject to the corruption or the capriciousness or the, you know, anything else that anything under the sun is subject to. God's not subject to any of that. He has remained holy the whole time. He is the maker of heaven and earth. The second big picture identity of God is that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, so he's the God who created heaven and earth, and he's the God who chose Abraham and has remained faithful to Abraham. Just like he remained faithful to his project of creation, he hasn't, right, in the, even in the flood, he didn't destroy everything. And even after the flood, he said, I'm not going to do that again. Instead, we're going to work to renew this and redeem it. Okay, so God's not intent on scrapping everything. God has, in, in being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has committed himself, has really limited himself to partnering with mankind to redeem the earth. That also indicates just his faithfulness through the generations. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and on down through the line. And then number three, that he is, as it says in the beginning of the Ten Commandments, he's the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So those three big things about who God is that we're seeing from the story, uh, those, should, those really f- form the foundation of our understanding of the rest of the story. He made heaven and earth. He um, chose Abraham, chose to redeem mankind back to himself through mankind, which is amazing. This is why ultimately Jesus was a man, right? This, this is where we're headed is the incarnation. God himself becoming a man, being subject to creation. That's what makes the gospel all the more amazing. And the third thing is that he's a, he's a delivering God. He's a rescuing God. He's a God that will act on behalf of his people to deliver them from powers that are too mighty for them. Right? And that's what, that's what the story uh, really points us to. All right? So, um, like we said, Passover is, is a remembrance of the God who brought them out of Egypt. For us, this meal is a remembrance of the God who delivered us from the power of evil. The God who, by his own body and blood, made it possible for us to come back into his presence. And so, with these big picture themes kind of really fresh in our mind... Let's come to the table and let's remember uh, that God has saved us. He's delivered us and he's brought us to himself and, and we are his people. He delivered us so that we would serve him, so that we would live 
in the way that he created us to live. Amen? All right. Um, I'll pray, and then we can just end with this. And, and you have a song, maybe? All right, so we'll, we'll come up, and uh, you can just take it back to your seat and eat, and then we'll just close with worship together. Amen? All right.